This is the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast with Dr. Julie Capel, episode number 231. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast. Today, I have a wonderful guest for you all the way from the UK. So I hope our internet holds up well for us. This is Dr. Lennon Fu, and he is a the founder of Amity Veterinary Care. He's a veterinary surgeon, business owner. He's a speaker, and he's the author of several books. One is, Is My Vet for Real?, and then a na- um, natural power in his new book that is out now. It's called Vet for Life. Welcome to the podcast, Lennon. I'm so thrilled to have you. Thanks for inviting me, Julie. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. So I always ask people, especially veterinarians on the podcast, to tell us their veterinary story. So you can start as early as when you were two or wherever you think is appropriate, but I love to hear how you got into this profession. Uh, So I'm from Singapore originally, and uh, it started with a classic uh, story, which most vets would um, sort of have uh, a kinship to. We like animals, and I felt that after the age of 10, I wanted to work in a space where I'll be working with animals. And in Singapore, veterinary medicine was the most obvious choice so having read James Herod and the likes, and that's how I sort of became uh, sucked into veterinary medicine. So at the age of 10, you know, I always knew I wanted to be a vet. And all my studies, my GCSEs, my A-levels were also primed towards being there. And uh, finally, I went to London to study to become a vet. Um, and I qualified in, back in 04. And since then, I started uh, a vet practice, um, working as a mixed practice. Uh, so I was doing like uh, large animal, farm animals, horses, and pets as well. Uh, however, after one year was up, I knew very, very quickly that my, my my brain wasn't that clever enough to know so many species. So I decided to <laughs> you had to narrow down to... a little, huh? <laughs> yeah, I got narrowed down a little bit. So, uh, and even we know that within the small animal industry itself, there's so much to learn anyway. So I've just been doing that since. Uh, so after working four different jobs in various uh, places, uh, four different practices, I've also traveled a little bit uh, using VET as a reason to travel with the Worldwide Vet Services, which is a tremendous charity, by the way, for those who like to travel using VET as a profession to use your profession to help other animals in other countries. I highly recommend joining the Worldwide Vet Services. I went to like six different countries wow. um, before I started Amity vets back in 2017 and uh yeah so far that's my journey so far and uh i can never i cannot think of a much better profession to be in whereby it produces so much provides so much for me in terms of variety and um fulfillment and achievement the avenues for you to travel into whatever your choice is uh, as much as veterinary medicine um and that's uh, where i am right now yeah, you're well. You're expanding your horizons, right? Because you're you're an author now and a speaker and all those things. So, how did you go from Singapore to the UK? Um, so very simply, in Singapore, it was out of necessity because in Singapore, okay. there's actually no bad colleges. Oh, so all okay. Singapore vets are all overseas graduates. 
usually from Australia because it's much closer. Uh, but I chose UK actually because there were too many Singaporeans in the Australian vet course, and I wanted <laughs> especially a foreign education. And I got you my want to be unique. <laughs> I, well, I wanted because it's so easy. If I go to Australia, I know for the next five years I'll hang out with Singaporeans in the same course because we are clicky like that. Okay, so, I, I see. So it was kind of pushing forced, yourself. Yeah. Okay. And I was forced to work with the locals, with, with, with the English, uh, mostly of my friends. And in the entire vet college, there were only two Singaporeans, of which I was the only one in my year, and another one in the fourth year. So I certainly did not have the whole Singapore absorption attachment when I was at the Royal Vet College in London. So I had my wish. Oh, that's really fascinating. So why do you think that you had that thought that I need to push myself out of my comfort zone. I need to learn a different culture. Like I don't, mm. I don't want to get into that click. Cause I think that's a fascinating way to think. And like, yeah, why, do you, why do you think I, that came from? Interesting. I suppose, I don't know, a good question. And maybe, maybe from young, I've always wanted to do something different. I was always the outlier. I was like, <laughs> if everybody is going Nike, I must go Reebok. Okay, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Yeah. Is wearing like uh, you know basketball shoes that's made from Nike or Reebok. I must go campus just out of principle. Okay, so, uh, so you were kind of a trendsetter. Yeah, I I guess I have a little bit of that, but I'm not as adventurous. That but that yeah. that's I mean that's a really good answer because it just means that you're trying to push the envelope, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Pushing the envelope is certainly the way to go. You must yeah. make sure the envelope is big enough. <laughs> Yeah, to to um, hold all of your interests, right? Yeah, sometimes I wonder, like, if I have too many, like, I want to do all the things. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I have a hard time focusing on the one thing, right? Yeah, that's what we call the SOS, the shiny object syndrome. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so try, try to avoid that. So we try to focus on yeah. one thing before you start getting expertise. It's, uh, like I, I, I suppose, for example, when I was in vet, um, being a vet, being a small number of vet, then I sort of dedicated uh, a bit of time to working in a zoo as well because I, mm. I enjoy my exotics um, yes. until I understood how what it was like to be a zoo vet, which actually put me off being a zoo vet. Then after that, I did acupuncture and I did that for quite some time before I expanded on to my next bit, which was a... Uh, I've always enjoyed exotics in general, but my next bit was... Um, keyhole surgery laparoscopy oh just, nice yeah it's so it sounds as though i was doing a lot of things but it's always one thing at a time after okay. you sort of get good at one then you pick up a new hobby and focus yeah exactly I, yeah. I, I i think we need that if not it, it's very easy to get a, the whole sos syndrome <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah or the squirrel like i call it squirrel exactly. alex one and i jump off Absolutely. what you're doing yeah yeah, that, that's something I coach bets on a lot is that mm. that capacity to not stay focused on what you really want to do. Exactly. I want to do everything. <laughs> I know and do it well, which is you can't. You've got to do one thing at a time to do it well, right? Slowly, so slowly. Tell me about the book. I read it already. So this I haven't I have a little bit of an advantage over the listeners, right? You sent me a copy and I read it. And I think it's really, really good. Like, I think people are going to get a lot out of it. So this is your third book. Tell, yes. me, tell me why this book and why now and tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, well, I suppose the smaller picture would be 
in veterinary medicine, uh, I think it may be similar over in the States as well. I feel as though right now we've got four major big issues or major crises that's affecting the vet force in UK. The first one is a quite high rate of depression. So we have got a cell helpline called Vet Life. It's almost like the Samaritan's helpline. And it's every year is just reporting to be doubling in number of calls. People are, more people are seeking help and things like that. So high depression, high attrition. There are many, many people who are actually leaving the, the vet in, uh, profession to do something else out of burnout or things like that. And the irony of it is not lost, whereby it's so hard to get into vet college. So the sentence of everybody wants a vet degree, but nobody wants to be a vet is a bit hilarious. Yeah, it but is hilarious, right? But it isn't. It is it's true. serious. Yeah, it is true. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So there's a weird uh, workforce, uh, workforce shortage. And the third one is there's an incredibly high number of suicides uh, in the vet profession. And compared to other professions, we are one of the so-called leading professions in suicide, whereby uh, vets are four times more likely to commit suicide, to end their lives compared to the general public and two times more likely than the medical profession. And the last one is the uh, low profitability. So the classic story would be people always saying how expensive vets are and vet bills are outrageous. And uh, whereas the reality is that the profit margin is actually as low as 7% for many companies, i.e. if you pay a hundred pounds, the minus all the expenses, the practice owner only takes back seven pounds. So that's not exactly the most profitable business, but nonetheless, the whole idea that vets are profiteering is big. So to address these four issues, uh, which is also partly why I set up Amity Veterinary Care, which is how we sort of work over here, I've also decided to write a book to help the uh, vets themselves, because the reality is that we have to take responsibility. How the public sees us is how we see ourselves. Mm, because we create yeah. the prices ourselves. All marketing is done by us. How we portray to the public, how the public sees us is literally what we told them to see us or what we did not tell them to see us. So it is not their fault they're thinking of things like this. So all change, if we want to change in the first place, has to start with it, not the outside. We can always blame clients for being ignorant and things like that. But if we don't teach, we do, they do not know. So the whole idea behind this book is to wanting to improve the level of depression, i.e. reduce it, reduce the level of attrition, reduce, definitely eliminate suicide, which is horrendous. I mean, everybody says, the classic thing that you hear also is when people go, oh, when you tell people I'm a vet, then they'll go, whoa, I always wanted to be a vet. It's such a good profession, na, 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 na. Then my question is, if it's such a good profession, why are people committing suicide? Right, How right. Yeah. And the last one is also to teach um, vets uh, ourselves about profitability in the first place. How, how people want more money, but um, how do we get about doing that, so to speak? Right, so that was, right. Uh, how I comprise all my ideas into that particular book. Into this book. Yeah. So who who do you think should read it? Like anyone who's a veterinarian? What do you think is... Yeah. If someone's out so there and they're like, why should I read this book? Who who should? Very, 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 very good question. Very, very good question. So the reality behind it is uh, the two points make about it. So from the reviews or the early feedback that I've gotten, and this has been given to a myriad of veteran uh, vets who are some who are actually final year students to fresh grads, to 10 year grads, to 20 year grads. And all of them pretty much agree that everybody should read it. 
And the 20-year grad, so I'm going, I wish I had this book when I was a student. I wish <laughs> I had this book when I first qualified. And right. some people say that. And some, some actually, some coaches who are vets then turn coaches, they said that if I read this book, I may not have left the vet profession. Oh. So things like that. So that was quite interesting as well. So in my head, it's a no-brainer. However, however, the second part to this is the fundamental rule of no pain, no sale. So I so I asked myself, if someone gave me that book when I first qualified, would I have read it? Or would I even find any view of it? And the reality is that potentially not. Because when vets first qualify, they are so excited to be a vet anyway, they don't see all this high depression, high attrition, high suicide. That I mean, certainly most people when they qualify is their thoughts will be, that will never, never, never happen to me. Right, so right, cool, yeah, it? it's true. So, so without that initial pain, it's really hard to sell a solution. So Correct. ironically, even though this should be in the syllabus, it probably will not be because teaching something to them that they do not even see the point of it at a point of time when there's so much clinical stuff to learn in vet college already, plus this, it may be a little bit not as important. I rather know how to give insulin to a cat than to learn to how to negotiate my salary. <laughs> I'd rather right, learn how to right. repair. Yeah, there's shit. different problems they're trying to solve. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, you know, yeah. the, 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 the whole vet degree is already so jam-packed in the five, six years that any university does. It's so hard to add something inside there to say that this is actually pertinent to longevity right. of something. It's just like trying to teach your kid about taxes. They have no True. idea. Yeah, they don't want to learn about finances or that no. kind of thing. They don't want to learn how to save so, money. They don't want to, yeah, you're right. So, yeah, that's so it's true. tricky. So no, no pain, no sales. So it is. <laughs> it takes a certain degree of awareness that this may be helpful. Then they will actually learn it. It's just like, can you imagine your 12-year-old or 10-year-old coming up to you, mom, teach me about tax. <laughs> teach me about the 401, 401k. Then, yeah. oh, okay, I just thought I'll teach it to you, but most people they won't. So hard to say. So if you ask me who should read it, I say everybody. Everyone. Who will yeah. Read it? yeah. Who will read it? Two percent, maybe. Yeah. Even. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I might disagree with you there. I think I think more than two percent of the veterinarians would benefit from it. So if we can get them to read it, or at exactly. least, you know, try to read it, I think it it would be amazing because you know, that's why I started doing what I do, because I see the same issues here in the United States. We've got the same, you know, attrition and the suicide and all of that. And, and that's what we're trying to change. That's our mission, right? And a lot of the tools in the book that you give them will help with the way they think about their life, the way they think about their job, the way they make money, that kind of thing. So how about advice for those people that you say the book is is going to touch more often than the new students, right? The people that are feeling burned out, the people that are feeling overwhelmed by their career, the people that haven't quite left, left yet, but we're trying to keep in the profession. Like, do you have some, you know, one or two like little bullet pieces of advice that you can give those people that are struggling right now? Yeah, a few really. One is that I think you really have to remember your passion, why you became a vet in the first place, and actually how resilient you actually are to actually become a vet. And that is what um, uh, people sometimes forget because they love the profession, but they can't stand the job. Mm. That's the thing. 
So don't be afraid to look outside that because the job which you're having that is causing you to burn out may not be the job for you. However, there may be somebody else that can uh, value you better uh, with the terms that you're wanting to have and things like that. And uh, certainly leaving the profession does not help the profession at all. You just become another statistic. The second bit is obviously recognizing, and it's quite important that most people, they like to wear the badge of hardship, especially the old, uh, the old school bats. <laughs> Whatever they say that, you know, you're, a, you're supposed to be on call. Yeah, you're, you're supposed, supposed to, to suffer, right? I week. suffered exactly. when I was young. Yeah, I, I've heard exactly. that before. That was exactly. happening so, even when I started in the profession with the people that were even older than I, you know, than I. Absolutely. absolutely. And, and just recognize that that is just a school of thought. And we cannot change our problems using the same thinking when we used to create that. Yes. So it is changing your mindset. It's changing and reframing it. And don't take those words as gospel and think you're not a good vet or you're not cut out to be a vet because you can't take the 70-hour week or you can't do the on-calls and you are exhausted because you keep waking up in the middle of the night thinking about a case that you have or an animal that you're thinking, did I do that stitch properly? Is it going to bleed out? <laughs> or phone calls that you get in the middle of the night when you're on-call. Just because you get all those worries doesn't mean that you're not cut out to be a vet. Right. There are a lot yeah, of ways to be a vet. There yeah, I try to tell people to that. It's like, just because you feel all these feelings that are negative, mm -hmm doesn't mean you're the only one. Like we all have experienced that. I, I can remember when I was um, younger and we didn't have emergency clinics to do overnight care. Like I would be getting ready to go to bed and I'd be like, you know what? I can't go to sleep unless I check on this pet. And it was before the days of like video cameras and stuff. So I would have to literally get in my car, drive to the hospital, look at that dog in the cage okay, she's not bleeding to death. She's fine. She's just sleeping. You know, she wags her tail and looks at me and then I could go home and go to sleep. It's like, we all have those worries, but we yep. just have to learn to, you know, accept them and deal with them and, yep. you know, get some constructive ways not to make them drive you crazy, you know? So, so you're not up in the middle of the night driving to the hospital like I was. No, no. and and I, I think one, one big thing which vets all lack and due to design is the five years in vet college, we literally almost learned 98%, 90% of clinical stuff. And right. nobody really teaches you all the non-clinical stuff, how to take care of yourself, how to reframe yourself and things like that, which is uh, very specifically why I wrote that book really. It's all the critical non-essentials that is needed to actually have a sustainable vet career and not just graduate and burn out within the first well, five years, 10 years, yeah. 20 years, you know, there's a way. They don't, they don't teach us that. They don't teach us the communication. They don't teach us yeah. how to take care of ourselves, how to set boundaries. Like that's all the kind of stuff that, that we're trying to teach. Right. Exactly. And just yeah. know that, you know, once you're qualified to be a vet, you, I mean, it, it takes a lot to be a vet. First of all, to actually get into college in the first place, you have you have already cut above so many people. Right, right. Like you, like you're you an elite group, right? Exactly. Then after that, to actually finish your vet college, that also takes <laughs> out, huge one piece. The, the money, the finance, the, the time spent, the amount invested. And when you became a vet, you know, what is all that for? And others, you know, you love what you do. And if maybe it's just the way you're doing it or the job that you're having is not supportive enough, doesn't mean you're a bad vet. It just means that Maybe you need to look elsewhere to find a job that supports what you want to do as a vet. 
So yeah, you haven't you found the right not. hospital. You haven't found the right exactly. career path, the right species, yeah. maybe like you're an exotic. Exactly. I love exotics. Exactly. I talked to a fish vet one time on the podcast and she just, all she does is fish. And it was fascinating. Yeah. Amazing. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, th- th- there is so much scope in the vet degree that you can explore in your, well, in clinical, even in non-clinical roles as well, but mainly in clinical, there's a huge amount of uh, niche that you and maybe you like to do surgery only, maybe you like to consult only. The the point being is that it wasn't easy, easy to become a vet. So, you know, um, without the holding on to forever thing, which, you know, we, we have to give up when we know we should give up, but don't just feel as though uh, due to sort of a no, no, normalization of what a vet should do and you don't fit into that mode. Well, maybe you are the modern mode. Maybe you are the future. Without a doubt, every action that you take would be part of how the vet profession is going to mold, going to be molded in future. Yeah, that's what I was and- just going to ask you. It's fascinating because I just that question popped into my head: is what can we do as a profession to try to move this ball forward? And obviously, you're writing a book, or you wrote several books, but this book that's out now. Um, we're helping, we're coaching, like what can we do as an overall profession to keep moving this, this movement forward that we're going to take care of ourselves and we're not going to, we're not going to cave to this profession. Yeah. So, so I think the first one, which is not even a profession thing, is a personal thing, really. It's uh, first of all, we must take huge, extreme personal responsibility Mm. until we take the responsibility that we cause this problem ourselves we will not be in a position to solve it because if we keep blaming other people, like the public, the cost of medicine, the cost of implants uh, for cert- for surgery, uh, the, the the public standards expecting us too high, yeah. long and short of it, if we start pointing the fingers out, we forget that every time we do that, three fingers are pointing back at us. So, <laughs> until, so until we take personal responsibility, say that, okay, we created this, how can we solve this? It is very, very hard to affect change when, when we keep blaming outside. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to really, really uh, understand the whole concept of what Einstein said. You know, we cannot solve our problems using the same thinking we used to create them and challenge our own thinking. What self-limiting beliefs have we got that is holding everybody back, including ourselves and the profession? But I know all this sort of um, legislation change or, or the surgeons act comes from the much upper echelons of the bigger organization like like for 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 in us would be the navac the uh, navc right. uk would be the bba and the psaba things like this it all starts up there but the one huge issue is that unfortunately fortunately, unfortunately they're all made of vets so if they're made of vets they think like a vet then right. if they haven't made that change yet then it's very very hard to change and the last thing, the last little skill, because it's like, how do they change legislation if they're thinking like a vet? Right. They haven't come out of it yet, so to speak. Right. So their beliefs are still limiting them. And I suppose the last one is embracing the whole idea of, as an individual, the, we have to learn how to learn, unlearn, and relearn very very fast and the thing is that there's a lot of it's always been done this way and yeah. therefore it must be right 
So yeah. unless that thinking changes, we cannot change the results because that thinking has resulted in statistics today. Mm. Right. Unless that thinking changes, unless you do something different, it's not going to change anything. So it is a lot of big steps, really, unfortunately. However, I'm a big firm believer that one person can change because if you start acting within yourself, you start changing. Over time, that's how things, how that's how change has been affected, whether you're in a leadership role or whether you're in a high echelon or not, how you portray as a vet yourself, every single interaction you have with a customer changes that particular individual's portrayal of how they view veterinary medicine. Yes. Yeah. And the people around you. So even if you're not a leader and you're just, you know, a veterinarian in a practice that you don't own, there are yep. ways to influence the rest of the people around yep. you by changing yourself. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I've yep. seen that a and, lot. Yeah. And, and it's very, very difficult because the change is difficult. Uh, like what I mentioned in the beginning. People no, fear no change, pain. right? Yeah. No pain, no sale. No pain, no sale. So <laughs> yes, there is pain, but it's still not dramatic enough for people to say that, okay, this has to stop. So yeah, right. people are saying, but it's one thing knowing what to do. It's another thing doing what you know. Right, right. Yeah. Do you think that on some level it has to do with the fact that veterinarians feel helpless to the financial end of it? Because I kind of want to talk a little bit about the finances because you talk about that in your book. And I think that's super important. Like that's something that I'm passionate about too, is is just money and, you know, financial freedom and getting to that point as a veterinarian. And I think it can be done. I see lots of people that have done it. Um, but do you think that that holds us back or is that a whole different yeah. subject? So, certainly the fact that the member of public is portraying veterinary medicine as expensive comes back down to how we view ourselves. How do you view how we view ourselves? So the question is, how do we view ourselves? And that is people's relationship with money. And most people, including vets and doctors, the reality is that their relationship with money is not very good. It's not very healthy. Yeah. So with that in mind, like many vets, how many vets do you know that say, oh, I'm just a vet. I, I, I do the medical side. The money is not my problem. Mm. Yeah. And Sometimes, like, yeah. That one, exactly. I'll, I'll to re- it's going to be this much, but you know, I'm just interested in helping your animal. Nothing about the money. Until we take responsibility of saying that actually, I want to discuss with your money up front. Because ironically, people don't talk about money. They say they don't talk about money all the time. And in the end, that's all they talk about. Because <laughs> one of the three three most uh, common reasons for clients leaving a practice it's money yeah yeah and, well, and sometimes well, just they don't understand it not necessarily exactly. that it's too expensive they don't understand exactly. what they're paying for exactly mm-hmm. and the reality is that sometimes vets they don't understand themselves what are they paying for they don't understand the overhead so if the vets don't understand the public hasn't got a hell in chance to understand in the first place. That's why yeah, I said, until absolutely. we take personal responsibility, until the vets go, okay, I need to learn. How is this business run? How? Why is my salary like this? Where's my salary from? And until you learn how to do that, number one, you cannot talk about you. You, you, you find hard to uh, show your value to other people and put a number to it. This how much appreciate surgery cost. Right. And number two, you'll not be able to negotiate your own salary. Yeah, if you and don't understand where it's coming money. from. Yeah, exactly. You just can't go to your boss and say that, you know, I'm five years qualified, I want more money. I'm 10 years qualified, I should be paid this amount. So you don't even know where it comes from. 
how do you even negotiate that in the first place? Yeah. So that's why on it's some level that. you have to get that yeah. business person brain going, even if you yeah. don't want to be a business owner. Yeah. Like I, I yeah. think when yeah. I bought my practice, I knew some about business because I was always interested in it. But when I bought the practice or I wanted to buy the practice and I started to learn, like there's so much that you don't know. There's so many tax things that they're paying under the you know radar that you don't see. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. There's all the you know things that break and equipment you have to buy. Like there's so much overhead. And I mm. I think most veterinarians just don't understand that. Yeah. And that that and, creates problems. And to a certain extent, how many practice owners teach their vets where did the money come from? That's so yeah. it's all comes back to we have to look inwards, we can't look outwards. If vets do not know. The practice owner didn't teach. Yeah, so it's on them in a lot of ways. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Absolutely, absolutely. Until somebody takes responsibility, because it's so easy for a practice owner to say that, yeah, my vets are pain in the backside. They don't know anything about money. They keep spending too much. They want more money. They don't talk about prices. But I say, okay, but are you teaching them? You're not teaching them. Where are they going to learn it from? And are you sharing the yeah. numbers? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know that's exactly. And business owners to do, but um, I. I saw like my employees' eyes go wide when I started sharing those numbers and being like, here's how much the lights cost every month. Here's how much the phone costs every month. Like Absolutely. they see their home bills that are, you know, maybe a hundred dollars a month. And then they come and you say, Oh, our electric bill is six hundred dollars a month. And they're they're shocked. They don't they don't think that way. Yeah. 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 And the thing is that if you come and convince your employees and your employees are thinking that, oh, the boss is making so much money. <laughs> You haven't got any hope in chance that the public doesn't think the vets are making so much money because the vets are thinking themselves the same the thing. The boss is making the money, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yes. And they don't know the profit margin is 7%, 10%. It's like, uh, the, as I uh, wrote in a book, one interesting story was uh, one of my great clients, She's uh, she owns a fish and chip van. And uh, so she sells fish and chips. And I was asking her, you know, so, so, so in vet medicine, the so-called coverted, Converted profit margin, we're always aiming for 20%. You know, uh, if you get 20% profit margin, you have done amazingly well. Great, I've known yeah. so many, yeah, so many practices, you know, the 15, 11%, 7%. If you get 20%, you're doing very, very well. So out of the interest, I'm just asking, you know, my 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 sort of uh, my client say that, hey, can I just ask you because I'm not, I'm not into business, do you mind if I talk business a little bit? You know, I was treating a dog as well. I said, yeah, 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 yeah. What what's your profit margin for your fish and chip van? You said 50%. I'm like, uh, sorry, what was that? Oh, you, we should you, all go you, buy you, a van, right? <laughs> exactly. You, sorry, you, you mean you mean 15%, 1-5. said, no, 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 Lennon, it's 50%, 5-0. I said, what? So I was appalled because from all that I learned is the fat coverter is 20%. And we haven't even got there yet. And the practices right. that I worked in the past never ever got there. And, uh, and they were doing very, very well, turning over millions but still about 15, 16% profit margin. Mm -hmm. So after that, I, I dug a little bit deeper. So I said, can I just ask you, how much was your turnover last year? And she said, well, it was about so 80K. So I said, do you mean to tell me you took home 40K from the 80K because 50%? So yeah. Now I thought to myself, like, wow, okay. If Let's pretend I use the, I use the, uh, I, I've attained the 20% profit margin that I wanted. Uh, for my practice, okay, it means that I have to turn over two. Uh, I have to turn over two hundred k to get twenty percent to get a forty k, 
except right. that now I've actually done more than 83k a year and UK we have this thing called the VAT the value added tax uh, it's, it's like a government tax you, uh, and that's 20% i.e. I have to turn over 250k to pay off the VAT and take home 40k because I've made my business such as 20% the COVID of 20% profit margin which not many practices make to take on that so I was asking I was thinking to myself if my 10 year old son comes up to me and say that dad I want to earn 40k. How do I go about doing that? And like, you look, you have two choices. One, you can go and own a fish and ship van. You turn over 80k, you get 40k, or you can become a vet and you got to turn over 250k to earn the same 40k. Go figure. Wow. Yeah, that's not right, huh? Exactly. Well, in the end, you know, just the well, answer. You can, you can see where there's some of the power. overhead in a fish and chip van. You don't need as many employees. Like there's a lot of differences, no. but also no. it's fascinating because it's it, it kind of makes you start to think differently. It's like, what, why don't we charge more? And I think yeah. we're always worried about the clients, you know, harping and crying and crying foul. And like you said, we've got to teach them that it's, that it's different. Well, when somebody, I think it's a whole idea, it's the same again of what the vets themselves, their relationship with money themselves, if they cannot convince themselves that what they're charging is fair, then there's no hope in hell that they can convince a client as well. Right. Um, and it's and when somebody says, and they must understand that when somebody says that is quite, that is uh, too expensive, what they really, really mean is, I don't see the value. Right. Right. Because people they're just not used pay, to their, they yeah. want to spend their money somewhere else. Like they they will spend that exact same amount of money on something stupid like a television or a piece of furniture. Absolutely. You know, like you can if you go to buy a couch or something, it's you plunk down a thousand dollars or exactly. more. And they don't yeah. think twice about that. But if you ask yeah. them to spend two hundred dollars on their dog, then yeah. it's a different story. They just haven't been trained. Yeah, well, to a certain extent, train is one thing or have been shown because when I say what they really mean is they don't mean it's too expensive because it's not too expensive. They can spend the money. Okay, what they see is I don't see the value. It's not their fault. It's right. our fault for not showing them the value. Right. So, so what's your, do you have some specific things that we can do in practice today? Let's say I, let's say I go to work tomorrow and I want to teach my clients and my, my people that I work with how much more valuable our services are than we think they are. Do you have like specifics that people can start? First of all, is learning the learning the finances, right? You got to learn yep. what, what's yep. really yep. costing, but what are the other things that you would recommend? So one thing which I wrote quite vastly in the book is this particular chapter called Embracing Humanity Through Veterinary Medicine. So I'm a big firm believer that, yes, we are vets, but if you are being a vet because you like animals and not human, you are certainly not in the right profession and nor would you be any credit to the profession because right. we do treat humans all the time. And I've always well, said, you know, I would argue that that's who we treat more yeah, than anything. Exactly. Like exactly. that human exactly. animal bond is what we're working yeah. for. Exactly. So if, if you like animals, get a pet. If you like animals, get two pets. Don't, don't be a vet. <laughs> you like people and you like animals and then you'll be a vet, so to speak. So what, what we sort of, uh, uh, what we've realized or understand, like what we practice in our practice over here, is that we understand that we must be embracing humanity through veterinary medicine. Yes, you're helping the animal, but you're also really helping the pet guardian. And unless you really truly help the pet guardian, you cannot charge more. If, if your treatment is like any other vet, 
then you can only charge what any other vet charge because there is the only value you're providing. However, if you're if you want to charge more, what it really really means is if I want to charge so standard sort of stand, standard vet consult is between thirty to forty pounds, maybe fifty pounds. Okay, if I want to charge hundred pounds, what it really really means is I have to develop a hundred. I have to give a hundred pounds worth of value, of which that client perceive as value, not what I perceive as value. Is what right. that clients perceive as value. Okay, so this really comes down to what what one thing which we classically teach is you must understand why is the client in the first place and what pain has brought them here. Back to the whole adage of no pain, no sale. Okay, right. what level pain are you sorting out? The guardian coming with the lame dog, the lameness of the dog, that's just level one pain. You got to dig down to level three. Okay, so level one pain is my dog is lame. Okay, most vets they stop there. They examine a the dog, it's on x-rays, it's a cruciate, sorted, end of story. And they yeah. think they've done the whole job. Okay? And that's just level one pain. That's why they can't charge any more than that. The level two pain is you've got to dig deeper. How is this affecting the pet guardian? Maybe the whole lifestyle is disrupted because they're not able to go out for a walk. Mm. Whereas usually, that's so it's more than just a lameness. It's their whole lifestyle is turned upside down. Okay? And maybe level three pain is the, is the guardian. What's the guardian thinking? Maybe they're thinking that maybe they're feeling guilty. Maybe they think they caused it. Oh, yeah. Okay. When you start digging down there and you can provide assurance and comfort to the pet guardian that, look, it's nothing to do with you at all, then you can see the relief in their face if they're those pet guardians go, okay, luckily it's not for me. Uh, luckily I didn't cause this. That was what's stressing, not the lameness. The lameness right. was just level one pain. What was my st stressing me out is, you know, I thought. Why did this it. happen? Okay. Yeah, that exactly. Kind of All those sort of things. Okay, which if the vet goes into that, then you solve bigger problems than just the lameness. Then you're able to charge more, because if they are the right client that perceives the value, if they are that sort of client, so so it is is very very challenging for me to just give a prescript like this because not everybody do the same. So right. one thing which we do in our practice quite a lot is you have to get the right audience. Focus on a few and not the many. And that is yeah. very, very complicated. Yeah, so get, get your right clients. Exactly. Yeah. Until you get the right client, you cannot give the right treatment. It's I, I always liken um, getting your clients is just like dating. You don't date anybody. <laughs> you don't <laughs> need to date them all, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So typically, you know, for vets, you know, when they get clients, it's, oh, you're going to dog. I'm, I'm a good vet. You must be my client. Right. Okay. It's so hard for them to say just because you're going to dog, doesn't make you my client. Okay? Right. It depends what you're looking for. Okay. Mm -hmm. You're looking for cheap and cheerful, and I'm a cheap and cheerful vet, then fine, you're my client. If you're looking for sophisticated ones, going to spend more time with you and explain everything to you, my consults are half an hour long and I charge double the price. You're looking for that. And if I'm a cheap and cheerful vet, I'm probably not your client. Right. Okay. And the thing is that most vets, they don't have this sort of concept in the first place. It, it's, it's almost like I'll if I'm single, I'll date any women. And hopefully, some of them become good. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> no. Isn't it? Not how but you yet, do it, right? Yet, that's how we do it with picking our clients. We'll pick all the clients and there's some good and some bad. Whereas, if we would adhere to picking clients like how we would date, i.e., I know what I want. I know my standards. I'll pick those people who fits with my values. And we go dating. And take it from there, 
you'll find a very different face in your yeah. in and how much happier would you be if all your clients meshed with you in the way that you exactly. meshed with people that you chose as friends exactly. or you exactly. know significant others yeah i exactly. think you know we there's a big misconception in vet med is that we have to do it all because yes. if we don't the pets are going to suffer and then that is somehow our responsibility exactly and i really try to tell clients it's like or my veterinary clients it's like you can't you cannot be responsible for all the pets in the world and you cannot exactly. be responsible yeah. for the client's decisions like if you diagnose something and you tell them how to fix it and they pay you for that service then if they don't give the medication or they don't follow up, that's not on you. Like you, you can feel bad that the pet's not getting proper care, but yep. to take that all in, I think that's really part of our overwhelm and our burnout and our stress is that yep. we're always thinking that we're supposed to solve the problems of the world and you just can't, it's just not possible. And so you do have to focus on those ones that you are helping and can help and that want your help. So absolutely, Julia, I totally agree with you. So, so before I qualified, during vet college and the first three years after I qualified, my reason for being a vet or going to work or going to study is that I want to save all the animals in the world. <laughs> Classic. Okay. Yeah, right. After, we had this big yeah, picture of exactly. we're going to save the world. Yeah. yeah. After the first three years, I rapidly found out that no, I, if I continue using this as my thought process, I will not survive in this career. Because we know, and you and I both know, and vets who are listening will know this, there are some pets with their guardians. The best thing for the pet is to change the guardian. <laughs> yeah, and you we don't have that. We don't have pet. that legal right, right? Exactly. In most exactly. cases, you are you're not helping the pet. So I had to change and modify my mission statement to myself a little bit more, to such that my job as a vet is to improve the bond between the pet and its guardian, mm. and to do so. I need to understand my guardian very, very well, which goes into human psychology and everything that they do not teach in vet college. Yes. Because another another thing that a vet taught me once is you lose a guardian, you lose a pet. If yeah, you cannot convince absolutely. the guardian to give the medication, like you said, you mm -hmm. lose a pet. You might as well just put it to sleep almost because yeah. you've lost a guardian. They are going to mistreat the pet anyway. They're not going to treat it properly. The pet is going to suffer under their care. So right. you, it's so important to get your human... Um, communication sorted out because the vet medicine is like cats with diabetes it's insulin you no matter <laughs> how you vary it you give insulin so right. that is almost very simple yeah we know we simple. know how to do that right exactly. it's not it's not rocket that science like, well, how do you convince its pet guardian to invest in the insulin the buying of the product keeping it yes. in the fridge drawing out the amount every day to give the cat twice a day that is the art of it yeah, winning them over so they want to do what you tell them to do. Yeah, exactly. I've always exactly. said that. I said they should put us through a psychology course in vet school. Like the communication part is different than like understanding who your client is and what motivates them and what they want. And, you know, like a, a person comes in with a dog with diarrhea, they're not really worried about the dog. They just spent all night cleaning it up in their house. They're worried about their carpet in their house. And exactly. so if you, can, if you can get on that level with them and say, okay, I get this. I want to solve this fast for you because, you know, who likes doing that every night with their dog and being up and cleaning up their white carpet or whatever. And so if you can go to that level, then they'll pay you any amount of money. 
or dig down even further if they are yeah. concerned that they cause the diarrhea themselves. You yes. assure them that no, it is not. It's nothing to do with you at all. So right. Here's what we're going to do. And you can get them to buy into the plan. Then, yeah, yeah I, I think that that is the key. And if we could, yeah. you know, teach everyone that that psychology piece, that communication piece that and it's not even empathy, I don't think like we keep saying we need to be empathetic. I don't think it's that. I think it's more of a like, what is what are they focusing on? You know, what does the client yeah. want from us? Not the dog not the dog to be healthy. They just want that diarrhea stopped so they can quit messing with their carpet. Right. Exactly. And, and, and more, and more than that is uh, there's a spin-off to that as well. So this is exactly what I mean by embracing humanity through veterinary medicine. So just using veterinary medicine as a platform to engage with other humans, to embrace the whole idea of humanity itself. And a spin-off from that is that another thing that many vets say is that they don't feel um, fulfilled they don't get the acknowledgement that they want right. because many vets, they're looking at from the animals. Yes. And that's yeah. a problem. If there is a feisty cat that is going to hiss and scratch and you have given it pain relief and antibiotics because it's got an abscess, it's got an infection and you solve that problem, the reality is that the cat is still not going to be grateful to you. <laughs> <laughs> so if no. you're looking for gratitude, if you're looking for gratitude from the cat and you base your level of amount of satisfaction from the gratitude from the cat, you may be very, very disappointed. However, if you have helped the client, the human behind, the client is more likely to be grateful for you. And if you're deriving your pleasure, you know, satisfaction from helping that client, not the cat, yes, you help the cat, but the cat's not going to give it to you, right. from the client, you're in a much higher chance of feeling that you're actually making a difference. Right. Because the cat that still hits at you after you treated it, you will not get the feeling that it made a difference. You may think so, but the cat doesn't think so. Right. So why are touching me? So is that derivation of satisfaction from the job as well? That you know, if it, it's like well, quoting, quoting, and quoting from Patch Adams from from you know with Robin Williams, really. Yeah. You treat you treat the patient, okay, you win or lose. You treat its guardian, you always win. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's so true. And, and it even goes back to helping you not be so negative about the profession. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Not expecting exactly. everyone to not expecting every person to be alike, not expecting every person to get on board. Like you said, choosing the people that want your help and need. And that is one huge mind shift that not many vets can make it because it's like, well, I'm a vet. I must take care of all the animals in the world. It's like, not necessarily true. It's not your fault that they had the animal. It's not your fault that they are such guardians. And uh, if you start picking your customers, those that, have, that that is fulfilling for you, and you know you, and very very gratefully and gently and tactfully, you just simply tell them, look, I'm not looking for a one-off transaction. I'm looking for a lifelong relationship, just like what you do with a partner. Okay, right. and right. maybe we're not a good fit. I will recommend you another vet that's of a better fit for you. I just want to make sure that you get the vet that you want the most because knowing your core values and our core values, yeah, we may transact right now, but six months down the road, we'll probably follow. So I'm wanting to avoid that for you. So to make sure that you get the vet that you want, that you require. Right. Well, so, and then the know, transactions become more of a collaboration. Like I, yeah. I experience a lot of veterinarians almost like fighting with their clients 
because mm. they want to treat the pet one way and the client doesn't want to treat them that way. Like they can't give them this medication or they, they don't agree with, you know, whatever you're offering to them. And so if you can somehow agree with them and get on the same page with them and create like a collaborative, um, you know, well, let's try that. Like I've said that to clients before, well, I don't want to do blood work and I don't want to, you know, I don't have the money, blah, blah, blah. And can we just try something? And I'd be like, well, okay, well, we can try antibiotics and ear cleaning or like whatever you say. But if he's not better in three days, you have to bring him back. Like this is how you collaborate. And if the client's happy with that arrangement, then they'll be back in three days when the pet isn't better. And then they might do what you originally thought they should do. And if you can keep from getting angry about that and make that okay, the collaboration then you will you will have that kind of relationship with those clients. I, I think uh, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think it's making the clients uh, be responsible for their own pet as well to say, that, look, listen, I'm the vet, but you that's your pet. You have to make the choices. Every choice has its pros and cons. Right. As long as we are happy with the choice and we're happy with the pros and cons, we accept the consequences. If it does not work, let's continue. And right. obviously as a vet, we are at a place where I say that as long as there's no any endangerment or infringement of animals' welfare, we can work with that. Right. So, so, so to speak. And that's where, you know, uh, totally. But that is all client communication. Nothing to do with the animal at all. It this is. This has nothing all to clients. do with the animal. Yeah. It's all client. That's why if you're in this profession, because you love animals that don't like people, wow, difficult. You'll struggle. Yeah. You struggle I've always said that. that. I, I, I always said people are animals. So if you can think that way, like that client is an animal. So you're, yeah. you're also treating them because it's, very, very true. Right? they're just, very, very true. Talk very back. True. yeah. Yeah. So what, what have I not asked you that we, you think we should talk about so we don't get too long. I don't want to keep you too long, but is there something that we haven't talked about that you think is important that we should? Yeah, I, I think it's just the whole idea that, you know, if you're a vet, you're listening to this and you are seeing what's happening to the profession and you feel you're going to do something about it, know that you can make a difference. Mm, yeah. It's, you know, you don't have to wait for some big gesture from somebody else to change the rules or something like that. Every single vet, you can make a, you can make a difference. And it starts, then the beauty of it is that it starts within. Yes. Because if you can find a way to make yourself fulfilled, then you can start fulfilling other people and you can start helping the profession in a very positive manner and light. And it's, it's, maybe it's time to educate yourself to learn more about finances. So you can, number one, explain to people why a bad bill is so expensive. Uh, and or more importantly, how you can control potentially your own finances, your own salary, because you, know, you can apply that to yourself as well. Um, and that and that is uh, good and that's and that's important and how you know you you are the fact that you're a vet you know so much more than other people already than your clients and what you say is of value because there's also a lot of a potential imposter syndrome going around yeah uh, how people feel like how people feel like oh maybe i'm not cut off for this and also who, who am i to who am i to make a change who am i to to make a difference well the truth is you are you and if not you who if not now when right there's not going to be a grand gesture that's going to change all this problems away it all starts that's the beauty of it you have got the power to do so in your own little way 
and it's not little at all. Because every action you take, every client you convince, every client you sort of uh, let them know you give the value to of what vet medicine really is, is one step towards a public changing that. Because this whole entire perception right now, how vets are ripped off and all these sort of things, it's not an overnight change as well. It took right. years and decades to come to here. So we cannot undo what has been changed. What well, We cannot undo what's been done in decades, but we should be taking necessary steps to do so. Right. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. It's so true. And, it, and a lot, like you said, it starts with you. A lot of it is just you being aware of the good and not always mm. focusing on the bad too. You know, like our brain is trained to catch all the bad stuff, but we've got to yeah. retrain it. Exactly. It's a negative bias, isn't it? I suppose uh, uh, to be even more specific, if you're an employer, make it your job to train your team very, very well mm. in all aspects. Make yeah. them understand why things are the way it is rather than saying that this is how much it will be and that is the reason why and there's no good reason to that. So teach them, show them because uh, they would want to learn the more you can empower them with the education the more they can empower themselves and empower the clients if you're an employee okay employ you can you're you're also in a great position to empower your employer as well okay to say so just go up to your boss and say that can you tell me more about finance in the practice i'd like to know more because i'd like to understand more so i can educate my uh, my my clients more so i can make uh, more money potential for you more revenue for you and if i do that then will you consider, you know, uh, negotiating my salary and things like that? If I bring the value, and I'm always going to bring the value first, not right. the other way around. Right. Not just so, I've been here a while. Time. I need more money, kind of thinking. Yeah. Exactly. And maybe your employer, if you start hearing your employee say that, "Wow, okay, look, this is a go getter. This is somebody who wants." And if your employer is not an idiot, this is this is this is a caveat. <laughs> if your yeah, and there is are not some out there. Right. They're not all idiots. Yeah. But yes. I mean, you and exactly. I know that they're not all idiots, but there are yeah. some. Yes. Then maybe you you would even have convinced yourself that this may not be in the right environment for you to stay in the first place. Sure. And you yeah. look for a different job. And you do well, have and the there's power in that, right? Like if everybody migrates to the bosses that treat them well, then at mm. some point, those bosses that don't treat you well are not going to exist anymore because they can't run their well, hospital without people. And no, so okay, no exactly. towards the same kind of mission, then eventually the dinosaurs are going to die off, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So know that you can make a difference. Every single in the DVM. You're a DVM, you can make a difference. Yeah. You're already yeah. more qualified than someone who's not a DVM. Yeah, veterinarians are powerful people. They really are. That's why I love meeting them so much, like this on the podcast. I mean, it's been it's been great talking to you and lovely to meet you. Will you share again the book and where people can get it and where they can look you look you up so they can get more information if they want to? And you know, maybe we'll get together again on the podcast, but share what you want to share so they can ask you more questions and and get the book. Yeah. So very simply, the book is called Vet for Life. Uh, yeah, and it's available on Amazon, uh, both in paperback and Kindle, uh, potentially soon on Audible as well. If you want to find out more about me, you can join me on social media, either on LinkedIn or in Facebook, just uh, Lennon Fu, or you can just go and Google Lennon Fu Vet as well. Uh, that should be bring you to the few web pages that we have, so to speak. 
Awesome. Anything else you want to add or we'll wrap it up? It's been a pleasure, Julie. It's been been so much fun and it's been great meeting you and I love the book. So I hope everybody goes out there and and invest some time to read it. It's easy to read. It's got great stuff in it. I I encourage everybody to, to take a peek at it. Thank you very much, Julie. It's been great. Okay, everyone. I appreciate your time and attention and I'm talking to Lennon with me. And I hope you all have a beautiful week. Bye, everybody. Bye, Lennon.